if you're on the Titanic and you think you're unsinkable, you're more likely to hit an iceberg. Whereas if you're on the Titanic and you still want to be looking out for icebergs. Hello there from El Salvador, the Bitcoin capital of South America, perhaps the Bitcoin capital of the world now. I'm having an awesome time here. I've just had a great day. I've been into San Salvador, the capital, got myself a tattoo. I visited a charity project and I also went to the National Stadium to watch El Salvador play the USA of football. It's an amazing day. God, I love this country. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and I've got Lynn Alden back on the show today, where we're going to be discussing the risks with Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And today we kick off Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, and phishing attacks are all ways that your Bitcoin can be lost and stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, I've been a customer for about a year, so if you want to ask me anything about this, you can hit me up on my Twitter DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses, because they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started and it's been a very strange start to the season. I mean, Liverpool aren't top and Tottenham are. What the hell is going on? we got Arsenal rooted at the bottom of the table. Very strange times. But if you want to have a bet on the football, there's nowhere better than the sportsbet.io. But even if you don't like football, they've got tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And also, let's talk about Exus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, because I talk about this on the show all the time, UX is super important to me. So when the Exus team reached out and they're like, Pete, we want to sponsor your podcast. I was like, come on, let me play with it first. Let me see what this is all about. And do you know what? They crushed it. And that's why I'm happy to recommend Exodus to you, my friends, and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop wallet gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Okay, so on to the show today. It's your favorite show every month. Lynn Alden is back for our monthly catch-up. Today we're doing something a little bit different. A couple of weeks ago, Lynn wrote about Bitcoin's reducing block subsidy and the transition to a fee market, and it caused a bit of a debate on Twitter. That's not everyone agrees with how this plays out, but it made me think. It made me think we should do a show looking at some of the risks that Bitcoin faces. The arguments like governments banning Bitcoin, 51% attacks, and quantum computing are normally not presented fairly and are basically just FUD. So in this episode, Lynn and I go through all of these arguments and try and make a balanced take on it all. So I hope you enjoy this one. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can hit me up on my email. That's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, on to the amazing Lynn Alden. Morning, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. We're on a similar time zone for once. Yeah, nice change of pace. Nice change of pace. Um, How's the United States treating you? Very well. Uh, very well. Had a uh, couple of good nights in Texas, and now I'm in I'm Worcester in Massachusetts. I'm about to leave, but I went to um, I went to see a band called The Ghost Inside last night. So if you're into hardcore metal, 
which I imagine you're not. But if you're into hardcore metal, you'd you'd enjoy it. But it was uh, no, it was really good. This I made a uh, podcast series about this band called The Ghost Inside, and they uh, had a bus crash a few years ago, and the driver was killed. The drummer lost his leg. It was oh, awful. Geez. Yeah, and they took four years to come back, and they played LA, and then COVID hit, and then they basically didn't play again for another nearly eighteen months. So it Jeez. was. Uh, yeah, but it was an emotional and good evening. Anyway, yeah, US has treated me very well. Um, always does. Uh, okay, so today's show. Um, I get so many emails, Lynn, where people are saying, you do a lot of pro-Bitcoin shows. You do shows with Willie where you talk about price. You know, it's all very pro. And then online, if anyone has any criticism, uh, especially if they're outside of the Bitcoin community and known well, you can go in and it's essentially a pile-on of people telling them why they're wrong. But some people are saying, well, we should have a better and uh, fairer debate about the criticisms of Bitcoin. So you and I agreed to do this. You ready yeah, for this? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, it's one of those things, some people might not, not might not be their favorite episode, but I think it's an important topic to cover. I think we should, it's, it's like one of those things, if you're on the Titanic and you think you're unsinkable, you're more likely to hit an iceberg. Whereas if you're on the Titanic and you still want to be looking out for icebergs, you still want to identify things that could conceivably mess up your ship. Uh, or at least delay your course or something like that. And so it is useful to to be on the lookout for all these different risks that can happen. I think the delay your course thing is important as well because I don't think most of the things we're going to discuss today are things that would necessarily destroy Bitcoin, but they're things that you can be prepared for that might uh, put a bump in the road. Uh, so I, I think these are all fair discussion points, and I think we should probably do a little bit more of this. Um, you know, I know myself, like, before I got a little bit swept up in tweeting out prices and having laser eyes and all those kind of things. And I think you perhaps lose a bit of objectivity. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. So one thing I like, I think one way I was able to reach a lot of people when I first wrote about Bitcoin was because I was, prior to that, I was cautious on Bitcoin. I basically explained in 2017 why I'm not buying it. Um, and then I you know kept monitoring it. And then 2020, when I bought it, you know that had some weight to it for people that were following my work because they know that I, you know, I, I saw information that changed my view on it. Uh, it wasn't bearish before, but it was kind of neutral. Like I wasn't convicted enough, and then I kind of was over that that level where I was like, okay, now I'm convicted enough to purchase it. And so it is, it is good to basically have sources that at least try to, you know, everyone, you know, everyone should try to be objective. At least we always have human biases, but we should try to identify those. Well, some of the people I find most interesting are the money people who've changed there their opinions, someone like Ray Dalio or even to some extent someone like Jamie Dimon, when they've actually realized, you know, they're on the wrong side of history here and they've maybe made some assumptions and they've gone back and reevaluated. I find those really valuable. What I find difficult is people's like Hanky and Schiff who seem to become so embedded, even Taleb who we covered recently. Oh, by the way, uh, how surreal was that uh, having Snowden tweet out to support you? I was like, a, yeah, I, I, there was like that joke that uh, Domino's meme, where like, you know, we just we went on, we went on your show to just talk about a paper, a Bitcoin show to talk about, you know, a Bitcoin paper, and then just the whole cu- cucumbers and Snowden, and it just kind of blew up from there. But it's, uh, but yeah. Anyway, just going back to that. I mean, uh, anyways, look, this is important stuff we're going to cover today, um, and yeah, I, I enjoy covering it. I've questioned myself a lot recently with this. I've questioned whether I've become a cheerleader. You know, I think of something like El Salvador, which is an amazing project. Uh, it's an exciting project, but it doesn't come with this. It doesn't come without risks itself, and it can come to risks to individuals who don't have a lot of money who might buy into this project. So, 
I think it's valuable stuff. And we're going to kick off by talking about governments, bans by governments. But it just, I just remembered, I did an interview with Saverdeen oh, uh, two, two and a half years ago, and he said the biggest risk to Bitcoin is good government policy. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, because we're contrasting Bitcoin with their currencies. So I, that's, yeah. that's what I imagine that the direction you, that, that argument went was. Yeah, that, that's the exact argument. But we know we're not going to have good government policy. So we're going to talk initially about bans by major governments. And we have had bans. We've had the the confusing China ban, which seems to keep happening. They keep, seem to keep on cracking down on it. But I'm, I'm not sure what left, there is left to crack down. I've been to Bolivia. I think it's banned there. I think it's banned in Pakistan. I can't remember everywhere else. Uh, conversely, we do have uh, the El Salvador situation and also other South and Central American countries looking positive. But um, bans by a major government, I guess you are thinking, well, the, the, the biggest risk would be a ban by the US government because they tend to lead the world. But maybe a, some kind of ban, coordinated ban across the EU. Uh, I, think, I think they're the two that concern me most. Yeah, because those are very big pools of capital. Uh, and so, you know, when a smaller country bans it, or even a large country that doesn't have a lot of financial weight, like, for example, Nigeria is a, a very large country. They've, they've, you know, banned it from their financial system, at least. Um, you know, but the United States and Europe are the two kind of, you know, 800-pound gorillas that could, you know, at least for the for the, a period of time, probably affect price uh, notably if they were to ban it. Um and it's worth, you know, there's there's a couple different types of bans. So one, it's it's really hard to have any sort of enforceable ban where you say people are just not allowed to own it under penalty of jail, right? So they did that. I mean, the Americans did that for gold for like 40 years from the night from the mid 1930s to the mid 1970s. Uh, it's kind of remarkable, you know, the land of the free, and you literally couldn't own a benign metal, uh, just a yellow metal. Um, and so you could conceivably have one of those for Bitcoin, but it's harder, right? Because, you know, it's it's, it's hard to prove someone has it. Um, if you are required to turn it in, you could just, you know, you could destroy your 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 hardware wallet, for example. And how do they know whether or not you have a backup? Um, it's it's basically, it's, it's the technology is better for making it hard to confiscate um, and prove that someone still has access to it. Kind of that classic uh, boating accident meme. Um, that is that is hard, you know. So it's harder than gold, and so a lot of countries haven't necessarily tried that route. I mean, even China, as authoritarian as they are, I, I think they've just they've seen that that's not a clean way to go, and so the 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 easier way for them to to do it is to say, okay, we're not going to go after the consumer level to say you you can't own it, and we're not going to try to enforce that. Instead, we're going to sever it from a banking system and ban industrial scale mining. Um, so what that does is you basically go after the fiat on-ramps, right? So you go after a handful of major companies. Um, those are easier to track, easier to stop, very easy to enforce. Um, and then also, you, you, you know, any, any sort of large mining operations, you can generally identify um, and, and cut them off. And so basically, you know, Nigeria has done this as well, where they say it's not illegal to own Bitcoin, but, but banks can't send money into, into Bitcoin exchanges. Um, and so you still have a, a vibrant peer-to-peer trading community in Nigeria, and they can still receive Bitcoin from, say, foreign sources, right? So if, if a Nigerian does graphic design for, for someone, and, and then they get paid in Bitcoin by an international source or a domestic source, I mean, that that's still totally doable. Um, they can send Bitcoin out if they, you know, there was that article in The Guardian where 
You know, there are protesters. The government cracked down and froze their bank accounts, so they're using Bitcoin. There are merchants that were just trying to do their job, and they had capital control, so they were able to use Bitcoin. Um, so that's still possible, uh, but it can slow down adoption if you were to get something like that in the United States or Europe, where they say these these big, giant, you know, multi-trillion dollar economies, the, on, the on-ramps are severed. And, yeah, you know, what's... Sorry to interrupt you. I, I was just going to say an interesting different point for Nigeria is, uh, and I, I know this is uh, prevalent throughout Africa, is the idea of these money changers. Um, we also had, the, when I was in Venezuela, uh, these kind of street vendors for uh, that are money changers. It's not really the kind of thing you have in the US or the UK. We have bureau de changers in the UK, but that really is like a regulated business. Uh, we don't tend to have people who stand on the street converting currencies for people in cash. Um, it would be interesting to see if that kind of ban came up, whether you would see that in the US or Europe. I think you'd see some of it. I mean, by, there would be a number of people that still want to buy Bitcoin, and so they would find ways. It just makes it so that, you know, if you make it so that institutions can't own Bitcoin, if you make it so that, you know, uh, you know part of why Bitcoin has exploded is because, the, the, you know, the, the user interface has gotten better. It's gotten more easy to access it. Um, and so that would be essentially a step back. Right, so that would increase the hurdle of of being able to get it, make it you know a step harder to get it, and so we, we should expect that, that that could conceivably slow it down. Now it depends on the re- reason for the ban, uh, because if the currency is falling apart and then they ban it, you know that people are going to find a way anyway, right? So um, it's one of those things where generally countries that block alternative types of money like gold or or Bitcoin, that's generally when you want to own something like gold or Bitcoin. Um, and so, for the, you know, the United States, for example, that 40-year period where we banned gold, if you look at a chart of 10-year treasury returns um, over, over inflation, and it's kind of, you know, the, the annualized return from hold, buying and holding a 10-year treasury till maturity, uh, you know, it's been most of the last, say, you know, 150 years positive, meaning you earned interest that was higher than inflation. But there was a really big period, it was about 40 years, uh, where it was negative. And, and that ban on gold perfectly overlaps with that period, right? So when treasuries were not good investments, gold was banned. Uh, and so, and it was, and even that, you know, gold, you know, it was actually really hard to enforce that that ban. There were actually, there were very steep penalties if you were caught, but there was very, very few prosecutions and they didn't go to door to door to get it. Um, and so there were, a lot of, there were a lot of entities that, you know, as far as people can tell, just hodled their gold through that entire period and it, that's just how it went out. Went out. So I think with Bitcoin, you'd have a similar phenomenon where, again, you, it's really hard to ban on the consumer level, um, even harder than gold, I would argue. Uh, you're essentially banning math or encryption or the ability to memorize a number in your head, uh, hard to prove someone has it. Um, and so it's, it's really my view about the fiat on ramps and the institutions and those large pools of capital that are, you know, if you want to see number go up, right, then and market cap go up, eventually those large pools of capital have to get into it. Um, and so if they're severed from doing it, that can slow down adoption. Um, unless things get bad enough that, that you know, that it's a crisis of confidence and people flock to it. So it's kind of like it could slow it, but it also could be a sign that, you know, things really are going well with the currency. If you were to see those major rule of law countries kind of ban that. We should consider consider the different types of risks because we said the risks here to Bitcoin because there's uh, risk like, like cataclysmic risk which destroy Bitcoin's use case and 
you know, pushes it down towards zero. There's risks of slowing adoption and there's price risks. And I think all of these things we're going to talk about have varying effects on each. I, I, I don't see a ban on uh, Bitcoin by certain governments as being a risk to it destroying Bitcoin, but I do certainly see slowness of adoption and and a price risk uh, to investors. Uh, one of the things that seems to be happening is I'm, I almost think we're past that point as well, Len. We, we may see other smaller countries ban it, um, but I think we're kind of past that point. As we have other countries accepting it and uh, considering legislation to um, make it legal, as we have in El Salvador, but also Cuba, I think, is um, passing through legislation at the moment as well. Uh, and I've also think we've seen in the US that there is enough weight within uh, senators, there's enough senators now who are starting to show an interest. We know we have uh, Senator Lummis, but also Ted Cruz recently. Um, I know certain people are working on uh, uh, forming uh, an SPAC, which is not something I fully understand because I'm not American, but forming an SPAC to actually, uh, as I understand it, that is to put people to run against those who may be against Bitcoin. So Bitcoiners have some power now. They have some weight. So... And also, even with the infrastructure bill itself, Lynn, that felt like more of an acceptance of Bitcoin. Like, there's a benefit. And if the US was to ban Bitcoin, it would destroy a lot of US wealth and a, quite a considerable part of the economy. This is something I've argued uh, in, in some of my pieces where people people tend to say if it gets too big, governments will ban it, whereas I tend to say the opposite. The bigger it gets, the more resistant it gets to banning because the donor class ends up owning it, politicians end up owning it, um, and it becomes a very large you know, pool of capital to influence politics, and that you know that you don't want to you don't want to destroy billion ten you know hundreds of billions of dollars of American wealth is stored in Bitcoin, uh, and yeah. uh, probably at least a hundred billion European wealth, maybe two hundred billion. I'm not sure the exact numbers, but there's a large amount of money there. And also, when you start looking at polls by places like NIDIG and stuff, I mean, a meaningful percentage of the population in some of these countries is beginning to own it. Um, and so, especially if it can go a few more years and reach a little bit higher adoption. Uh, that you know starts becoming you start to pay you start to get negative dividends politically if you go after it and if you sound like you don't understand it um, and and so I think that they're starting to realize that um, and the, the interesting thing about this this recent like infrastructure bill so yeah they basically they didn't know what they were doing uh, so they wanted to they wanted to raise funding for the bill. Uh, and so they said, okay, let, let's step up enforcement for taxes. Because that's one way that they can raise tax revenue is to say, we're not going to do a new tax, but we're going to try to get better enforcement of an existing tax. Um, so that's what they were trying to do. Uh, but they didn't understand the technology enough to write that properly. Uh, and so it had this big ambiguity that you can almost say, like, it, basically, there's an unreasonable uh, tax policy on on uh, basically anyone using it, essentially miners, things like that, that they can't, they literally can't do. And then, so the question is, well, does that kind of, you know, by extension, make them illegal to run because they just can't file that? You know, it's it's kind of this big, like, you know, bureaucratic mess. But then there are a number of politicians that understood the technology better, um, or at least, you know, had the, you know, were, had the ear of someone that that understood it better. And the interesting was that was a bipartisan push, right? So you had some of the well-known Bitcoiners in in Congress that were on top of that. But then you also had other faces that that were not previously familiar uh, from both sides saying like, wait a second, this is poorly worded. We need to make sure this is sorted out because of course we want, you know, people to pay their their legal taxes, but we don't want to write this stupidly so that, you know, the innovation goes elsewhere. Um, and so it, it was a wake up call, I think. Well, we're seeing that in Europe. I mean, 
I think the US is fairly pro-Bitcoin compared to Europe, uh, especially UK where I'm from. Uh, we have a very small Bitcoin scene in the UK, something I, I'm not even that part of. I spend most of my time here out in the US working with uh, US people because it is more pro-Bitcoin. Uh, we're also seeing it with various various discussions across the EU. So I actually find um, the US more pro-Bitcoin than Europe, but I, I'm kind of with you now. I'm, whilst it is a risk, and it could be a risk, and... Um, I actually think we are, it's starting to look like we're beyond that point. Um, and if, certainly if Bitcoin does another five years without some huge regulatory oversight, which becomes almost catastrophic to adoption and growth, um, I think the wealth that exists within Bitcoin is something that could not be ignored by senators. And then the Bitcoiners have the, the power, the ironic being that a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of like anti-state, but will have the power to uh, leverage their Bitcoin to have some kind of political influence. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, the bigger the bigger it gets, the you know the harder it gets to to deal with, in my view. And you know, it's it's hard to say if we're really kind of fully past the event horizon. I think we pretty much are. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that central banks do talk to each other. Um, you know, they have the Bank for International Settlements. They basically have a lot of coordination. Um, and so you you could kind of see a last ditch effort to sever it from the banking system across multiple countries if something was really going wrong uh, in their countries. Ironically, you know, they they would blame Bitcoin for things like their currency not not you know, starting to fail, for example. If people get tired of persistently negative real rates, uh, they start to get out of the currency and you start to get currency issues, they could, as a last-ditch effort, blame Bitcoin. And so I wouldn't say we're fully out of the woods, but at this point, you have reached, in my view, at least in the United States, some sort of critical mass where you have enough donors and politicians and things like that where it's really, you know, in any sort of rule-of-law country, it's really hard to outright ban it. I think with these things as well, it's, it's the consideration. If this is a risk, it's what's to be done. But I, I really, I was really impressed with how people in the Bitcoin community came together and actually realized, look, we need to, uh, we need to work together on this. Some lobbying efforts, you know, phone your senator or is it phone your congressman or, um, but, but yeah, I think people are starting to realize, yes, this is a risk, and perhaps, you know, rather than being outside of the system, we have to work perhaps a little bit within the system to. Uh, protect us protect us against this risk um a little bit similar to how you know sailor approached the mining and energy fund he took a lot of criticism at the time uh, me included um uh but actually in some ways if you can uh, fight off these attacks i think uh, i think it's a good thing so Okay, that's uh, bans by major governments. Um, the next thing we were going to talk about is a major bug, which we know has happened in Bitcoin. There was a massive inflation bug at one point. It, it is a risk, uh, and there are different types of bugs. I think the biggest risk is uh, some kind of consensus bug that leads to a chain split, uh, and how that's dealt with. Uh, it's always a risk. I'm actually I've done a few interviews with various people who work on Core and talked about the uh, the process they go through for code reviews, but code can have bugs. So it's not a it's a non-zero risk. Um, what have you looked into with this? Yeah, I mean, so at the end of the day, we're running distributed software to come to a consensus on a blockchain. Uh, and so, if there are bugs that interfere with our ability to, to do that, uh, it can threaten kind of the the you know the obviously the the near-term functioning while it's happening. But then longer term, it can it can affect the perception of safety uh, and its its uh, usefulness as money. Uh, if you were to get major ones of those or too many of those. And so, you know, Bitcoin, actually, this is in the news because Ethereum yeah. just, just you know, recently had a chain split. Um, and that's not the first time. And it's one of those things, too, where users were basically, you know, 75% of, of nodes supposedly run this one type of node software. And they were told that there's a security issue they have to update. 
Uh, and so they update, and there's a chain split because um, there's a bug in that. And so it also kind of threatens the self-sovereignty of the the nodes, where you know you're basically saying, I recognize Ethereum, let's say, uh, as the node I'm running. Um, but then if someone says, actually, your your thing has a critical bug, you have to update. Uh, that kind of affects your self-sovereignty. Um, and so if you look at Bitcoin, you know, it had an inflation bug in 2010 that, that Satoshi fixed. Um, in 2013, there was an unintended uh, chain split from an upgrade. Um, and so, but back then, Bitcoin was a much smaller asset than Ethereum is now. I mean, it was like four years old, is very small, whereas Ethereum is like six years old. Uh, and it's hundreds of billions of dollars. Like they should be past the point where that happens regularly. Um, but so so far, Bitcoin has had a better track record, in part because security is like the number one thing in the, in the Bitcoin culture. They want to keep the code simple. Uh, they want to be super uh, slow and cautious and, and achieve massive consensus before doing updates. Um, it's, but that doesn't rule the possibility out. I mean, if it, there's actually been, besides those two incidents, I mean, there were like uh, issues in 2018 that required, uh, you know, kind of node updates to, to resolve. Uh, if you look at the kind of the, the, the list of issues that have occurred, it's actually a, a reasonably long list, but they've just been handled better so far uh, in the Bitcoin community. So it's, 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 you know, my view, by far the most rock solid blockchain in terms of how well it's designed. Uh, the culture around maintaining it, uh, being cautious with it, uh, but we can't rule out the possibility of unintended uh, chain splits, or you know, we find out that our existing node is somehow compromised, um, and that we have to up- upgrade to something. Um, and so those types of risks are present, and especially as you're building out what many people view as eventually being like a global reserve currency, a currency based on energy, this international store of value medium of exchange. You want to be that to be as rock solid as possible, and not to have things kind of hurt the brand. So back in 2013, when Bitcoin had that chain split, it, its price did go down. It's funny because Ethereum just had the chain split; the price didn't go down. It's because no one, we're not, they don't care about security. Um, whereas, like, you know, with Bitcoin, the risk is that because Bitcoin is known as the secure one, you really don't want a, a major security bug or something like that. Um, because that that does kind of, in my view, threaten the value proposition. So, long run, we we want to see this kind of you know their continued very cautious approach. And it also, whenever this happens with Ethereum, we're reminded why Bitcoin is designed the way it is, where it's it's meant to be non buggy as possible and as clean and elegant as possible. Well, that's why I found this uh, recent narrative around Ethereum as ultrasound money so disingenuous. I I, I can't figure out if it's a troll or they're they actually believe it themselves. I think some people do. Uh, but I found it so disingenuous because uh, I think if you're going to have something, you're going to call something ultrasound money, it has to be built on a solid foundation. And, and that's what Bitcoin does have. Bitcoin has the most solid foundation on this base layer. Whereas something like Ethereum doesn't have the most solid foundation because it is so complex. There is so much to it. So I, I, I've always found that uh, a bit disingenuous. But if anyone is listening and they're thinking, well, what can we do about this? I think the best thing people can do is, especially if you hold a good amount of Bitcoin, or if you just made some good gains, I think it's on all of us in a voluntary way to make contributions towards open source dev. I know you do. I do. Um, it's not a huge amount, but it's still you know a relevant amount. All that money that goes to Chaincode or Brink or uh, even the Human Rights Foundation, that is helping beef up the developers, the, the number of developers we have. And uh, it's been great to see some of the exchanges, the even Coinbase and the Winklevoss, and various other exchanges start to contribute towards this. But I think that is something that's on all of us to do. 
I agree because, you know, there are some projects that can be done with, you know, normal investors because they have a, a reason to be uh, profitable eventually. Uh, but there are other things that, you know, just are not going to be inherently profitable, like maintaining, you know, the core code or, uh, you know, adding privacy features maybe, right? So that's kind of like human rights uh, foundation stuff mm-hmm. where they want to, you know, boost privacy. There's maybe less money in that. Um, and so those types of things, it really is good to donate to, uh, to basically give back to, you know, help solidify this, you know, what is currently almost a trillion dollar asset. Um, and, you know, basically if you want to minimize the, the, the risk of, of bugs and, and issues like that and advance the development in a, in a slow and cautious way as much as possible. Okay, the next thing we're going to talk about is quantum computing, which is something I have covered in the past, but it's, I'm a couple of years out and people are asking me to cover it again. I've got a feeling the conversation will be very similar, though. Uh, it's not a reason not to do it, but quantum computing. Um, we know that the promise of quantum computing could be catastrophic to Bitcoin. Um, but uh, the conversation I had last time was that uh, we're not there yet and we might never get there with quantum computing. We may never get to a point where people are able to build usable quantum computing, uh, uh, sorry, quantum computers that can actually, uh, 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 I mean, what is, it, what is it with the quantum computer? The, the risk is that it can break the SHA-256 hash. Yeah, and I think, you know, my I'm not a encryption expert no, or a quantum computing expert, but I, I have looked into it pretty pretty deeply. And my understanding is that you you can't just unravel all the Bitcoin with it, but you could conceivably take a, if you, if you find a public key, you could then derive the private key associated with that public key. So you could start breaking individual uh, addresses, uh, which is different than just kind of like turning off the light switch and Bitcoin's just, you know, messed up. Um, but of course, that's obviously a major security threat. It, it affects the, you know, the, the usefulness of Bitcoin as money. And so, I mean, there are also, you know, so yeah, going back to the probability, right? So a lot of people take it for granted that we're going to have quantum computing. Uh, and, you know, technology is not one of those guaranteed straight line things. I mean, we're not promised quantum computing. We're not promised cold fusion. We're not promised to be a space-faring species. You know, we don't know how some of these technologies are, are going to develop. And so, for example, if you look back at aerospace technology, I mean, people in the, in the 80s thought we'd be like in flying cars by now and that we'd be like on Mars. And if anything, we've kind of taken a step back in terms of our aerospace abilities. I mean, our, our fastest commercial jets now are slower than they were. The, the fastest ones 40 years ago. Uh, our military jets are slower. So we, we've advanced a lot in some areas, but we've kind of stagnated in other areas. And so some things end up just being very challenging. Um, and so one is, you know, we don't know how far away that is. We don't know other than it still seems pretty far. And then two, there are, you know, known ways or at least kind of developed ways to make, you know, upgrade Bitcoin so that it becomes more quantum hard. Um, and, you know, the risk is that, you know, that it could require action by addresses to maybe move to another address or, or something like that. I've seen that, you know, put out that probably people that understand the encryption better than I can can explain that. And so I've seen, for example, arguments that, you know, Satoshi's original coins might eventually be taken by quantum computing because he probably would never, even if he's capable of doing it, probably wouldn't upgrade to another address location, for example. So, you know, we'll see how this plays out, but I consider it a very low and long-term risk, similar to how if I'm an, if I'm analyzing an energy stock, for example, an oil stock, you know, I have to sit there and say, well, what if they develop cold fusion in the next five years? You know, it's 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 not something that I it, it's firmly on, you know, something you can really do something about, other than be aware that you know technology can change over time. We can get new energy sources, and so similar, you know, we have to be on the lookout maybe for quantum computing, 
but I don't consider it like a make or break thing. This is something that you know, people will probably be prepared for. So the only major surprise would be if, if someone somehow develops cloud computing in secret and then starts launching it at Bitcoin. Um, but also, I mean, it's also worth pointing out that... If sorry, you, if said, that's your, you, you said cloud there, you meant quantum. Oh, yes, quantum computing and then attacks Bitcoin in secret mm. uh, from that. And that's also worth pointing out that it's not just Bitcoin that would be at risk. Would, our entire, you know, banking system, brokerage system... Uh, everything we do is pretty much based on encryption working. Well, the entire uh, internet. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, Bitcoin would be one of many concerns at that point. It's not like, you know, oh, you should buy stock instead of Bitcoin in case there's quantum computing breakthroughs. It's like, no, you, you pretty much want to own guns and gold and food and, you know, if that kind of, exact, yeah. So it's one of those things where you, we want it on our radar. We want, you know, it's another, you probably want developers thinking about that over time. Uh, to eventually, you know, find up updates to do that in the cleanest way possible if that starts to become a more legitimate threat. Okay, next we're going to talk about uh, a significant exchange hack. So, obviously, back in I think it was 2013 was the Mt. Gox hack, um, which was was it 2013 or 12? I can't remember, but it was a catastrophic moment for Bitcoin. And I know many people I spoke to at the time said they felt like this might be the end of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, eight hundred or thousand Bitcoin was stolen. Um, I think we do have some PTSD from there. Um, but at the same time, a lot of solid Bitcoiners are uh, stand by what Andreas said: "Is not your keys, not your Bitcoin." Encouraging people to um, uh, self custody. At the same time, with the mass influx of uh, new Bitcoiners and auto, also institutions, we know some, some many of them are, are uh, having their Coins custody for them with the likes of Fidelity. Uh, I think Coinbase custody over a, it's over a million Bitcoin now. I can't remember their numbers. I don't know how many Fidelity have. Again, I don't see this as catastrophic. If it happened, it wouldn't be great. We probably would go through a, a very similar uh, price crash scenario that we had in uh, 2013 with Mt. Gox. But what I do see it would potentially do is reduce the confidence of people. And also, you could link that back to our first point. That could potentially uh, become another uh, attack vector for regulators, uh, believing that this is not now a safe asset. Uh, at the same time, I look at the likes of Coinbase, and I have a huge amount of confidence in, in them that they they have uh, procedures in, uh, in place that kind of can pre- prevent these scenarios. But who knows, right? Yeah, but I, mean, I think you described it well. Uh, so we still have, I mean, exchange hacks still happen regularly, unfortunately. Um, but at least, you know, they're not currently these ma- these huge ones that own large percentage of Bitcoin. And that's, you know, because the industry's grown so much uh, since the, the Mt. Gox days, you know, these, these large custodians have tens of billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin stored in them. They use extremely sophisticated methods uh, to protect that. Uh, and so that the risk is very low. But yeah, if something like a Fidelity or a Coinbase just was like depleted of its coins, that would be a, you know, like like you pointed out, that wouldn't kill Bitcoin, uh, but that could slow adoption. Uh, and so it, it's one of those things where, you know, if you look at, I believe Grayscale uses Coinbase custody, right? So it's a very, you know, there's a very large amount of people, for example, reliant on a handful of these, these centralized institutions to hold their coins. And so obviously the one defense against that is to hold your own keys, uh, but not everybody is technically suitable for that, right? So if my if my mom were to buy Bitcoin, she's probably not going to set up a multi-signature solution to have metal backups. Uh, you know, she she's going to just hold it with someone, some institution that she trusts, kind of like her bank. Um, and so there is a market for that. It's an important market for for custodians. 
Um, and so we want that to be, we want the uh, user interface to be attractive. We want it to be easily accessible uh, so that, if that that's part of what makes adoption go higher. I mean, I remember back when it was, it was new, Bitcoin, and I was, I was very busy back then and just kind of, you know, I had a lot of my plate. And every time I would just think of Bitcoin, I would kind of just, the, the UI just wasn't there yet. So it's kind of like, I, I would kind of like, maybe I should, you know, open an account on one of these exchanges and try it out. And I was just like, eh, it, it looks sketchy. I don't know. So like, it's, it, I just never, never got past that point to actually put an hour into it and kind of figure it out. And so it's gotten to that point where it, it you know, it, it, it's gotten a lot easier for people to access um, but yeah, you would shake people's confidence. You would bring on regulators probably if you were to have one of these enormous kind of whale institutions go down. Um, and so it, it is something to be aware of because you could wake up one morning and just see the price down 20% because some crazy thing happened like that. And so that certainly affects people that are you know, involved with leverage in any way, right? There's not something I generally recommend. Uh, but if you're a hodler, that shouldn't be kind of a, a catastrophic outcome. Um, but it certainly is a, a price and adoption uh, affected thing and a, and a regulator thing. Well, and, and the things people could do is just learn about custody in themselves. Uh, consider multi-sig. There's a couple of good solutions out there. One of them is my sponsor, um, Casa. They have a very nice and clean interface for uh, custody in your Bitcoin uh, with a multi-sig wallet. But also, no, I think Unchained also have one. But I think there's a little bit more focused on corporate clients. But I, I, I think that transition. It's a message we need to keep pushing. There are some other complications around it in that we do have the uh, borrower lending services. Uh, again, one of my sponsors, BlockFi, and uh, there's a few others out there, uh, Ledin, and I can't remember the other big one. Um, but but you can't custody the Bitcoin to use those services. And I know there's some talk around other ones which you know, are multi-sig and perhaps they own one key, etc. But th- there is that thing that we do need to keep pushing the education. People do need to spend the time looking at this. I guess the complication with something like Casa is, is that you really want their three or five, but you have to have a certain amount of Bitcoin. So if your first Bitcoin is a purchase is a thousand dollars, you're not going to be buying a fifteen hundred dollar service. So I just think we need to keep push- pushing the message, Lynn. Yeah, that's how I view it, and it's one of those things where I think you've even had guests to describe this: is that some of these, you know, like the hacks, for example, the Mount Gott hacks, end up being end up kind of showing Bitcoin's anti-fragile aspect because that is what led to. You know, kind of the you know the acceleration of development of things like hardware wallets uh, mm-hmm. and, and easier ways to self custody. Um, I don't. I, it might have been Parker you had on the show that that said that. But you uh, you know, there's a lot of people that pointed that out. That Bitcoin's anti fragility nature is that when something attacks it, generally the next year you'll see a bunch of def, you know responses to that attack, right? Well, it's so the, it's the immune system coming back. Exactly. Uh, and so that's that's part of the whole kind of self custody. Narrative, you know, part of what makes Bitcoin different than gold and more resistant to centralization or confiscation than gold is that ability to self-custody it, even in large amounts, as long as you use increasingly, you know, sophisticated ways of doing that, which is hard to do with gold at, at large amounts. Um, and so, the, the having a culture based around doing that and educating people to do that is important uh, because that's what makes Bitcoin overall more resilient, but then more importantly, protects them personally from a counterparty risk associated with an exchange going down. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about Bitcoin risks. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And I'd like to welcome my new sponsor to the show, The Awesome Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs and I'm now mining Bitcoin again. It's so good to be back. And I fucking love these guys. Now, Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. 
and it was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass Mining. You just pick your machines, you choose your hosting facility, and they help you with everything else. It's so damn cool. Now, if you're interested in mining, you want to find out more about this, then please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases. And you know what? There's no annual fee. It's the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase, but not just that 1.5% back. Now, that's not enough. They're going to give you 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in the first three months of card ownership, and you can earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, I'm still using that one right now. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you're an Android phone user, you can connect that to your Ledger to manage it on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And this week, we finish off with my exchange sponsor, Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But you know what I'm going to say now, right? I am not selling Bitcoin. I haven't sold a single sat through Gemini. Now, I started using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know what? I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Right, the next thing, next thing we're going to talk about is something you've dug quite deeply into recently. I'm not going to pretend I understand this fully. Uh, I'll ask you the questions based on what I understand and I don't understand. But we're going to talk about this long-term uh, transition towards fees. This is something that comes up quite a bit. I've received quite a few emails. People ask me, what about the transition to fees? You know, what happens when the uh, block subsidy is you know, not gone? Because you know, that's 2140. You know, we'll all be long gone ourselves. But... But as it uh, reduces, um, so I know you've looked into this. You did quite a bit of a de- uh, deep dive. I'll put the um, I'll put the link in the show notes, and I think I'll try and link to some of the Twitter discussions that happened around it. But can you just tell me about the research you did here? Yeah. So eventually, you know, people often ask what happens when all the coins are mined because they assume that miners just kind of go out of business. But that's not the case because there's also transaction fees, um, and they've been there since the beginning. Uh, but in the beginning, they were a very small percentage because blocks weren't even full. Um, so once Bitcoin got big enough where it could reliably fill block, you started to get a more reliable fee market. Uh, but even that does vary considerably, right? So obviously fees earlier this year during the during the, the sixty thousand dollar bull market were very big compared to what they were during the the bear market portion. Um, and so, you know, at, over time, especially as we get into say the twenty thirties, um, you know, the block subsidy will be small enough that the the protocol will be more reliant on those fees. Uh, paying miners. And it's one of those things where this is how you know, adoption can affect security because the, the bigger Bitcoin gets uh, while that block size is still tight means that those, those blocks are more reliably full, fees are pretty high in the base chain, uh, and so that can keep security up long term. 
Sorry, just before we jump into that, should we just explain to us, because some people won't understand uh, how Bitcoin derives its security and why uh, why this is born and how the role of miners, etc. So should we explain that? Yeah, so that's actually a really good point because part, you know, Part of why Bitcoin's network effect is so strong is, is because it has the highest security. And then the more adoption it attracts, the stronger that security gets. And so basically, you know, with any kind of proof of work blockchain, you have a bunch of miners that are working to you know, find the next block, um, which, which grants them coins, uh, which is pre-programmed to decrease every four years, the number of coins they get per block. That's, that's the declining block subsidy, as well as any transaction fees that people are willing to pay to make sure that their transaction is towards the front of the line to get in that block. Uh, and so, you know, the, the larger amount of miners backing that up makes it a much higher hurdle rate for anyone uh, trying to do a 51% attack. And it's it's actually more risky. So Bitcoin's advantage is that it's in addition to it being the biggest cryptocurrency, it's, it's by far the biggest proof of work, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, especially using the algorithm that it does. And so it's actually this is a risk for chains that are using the same proof of work algorithm as a bigger coin. Uh, so for example, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, Ethereum Classic, these tend to be very vulnerable to uh, 51% attacks because it only takes a percentage of that larger coins miners to go after that smaller one. And so, for example, if one percent of Bitcoin miners are bored, they can go after Bitcoin SV and do a 51% attack, and then go back to mining Bitcoin. Um, and so that's why security is important. That's why you know Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash are not the same, right? You don't have the same security assurances associated with them. Uh, and that's you know that's why many people view Bitcoin as money, but they don't view these other derivatives as money because they have far less security, far less hash rate, far higher probability of fifty one percent attacks occurring. Um, and so over the long run, the question becomes, will transaction fees be enough uh, to you know make fifty one percent attacks rare or impossible? Um, and how do we adjust with that? And so I think you know the short answer. I've done all kind of this, this math associated with it to see how it scaled historically, uh, how it could conceivably scale in the future based on a couple different outcomes. We can kind of model it like a matrix, right? So how big does Bitcoin get? Um, you know, what is the say the percentage of market cap or the percentage of annual transaction fire volume that is you know takes place as fees, and is that enough to sustain it long term? And the you know, the answer is that. As long as Bitcoin continues to grow, the answer is that it should be able to sustain itself. It should be able to generate multiple billions of dollars worth of fees per year, um, and that creates a pretty high hurdle rate for anyone to go after. And the challenging thing is that there's no proof of how much security is appropriate. It's one of those things that so far has been secured in practice, but not necessarily in theory, where we we can we can walk through the steps it would take to do a 51% attack. I mean, you have to acquire 51% of the hardware. Uh, which is now very geographically distributed. Um, and then you'd have to channel electricity of a small country basically into it and start trying to do 51% attacks. And even then, even if you're successful with a 51% attack, you don't kill that chain, right? So, I mean, those those other tokens that have been attacked, they're still around. Um, it just well, means and I also, that... Sorry, just sorry to interrupt. When I spoke to, I think it was Harry Suddock, when we talked about mining, he said actually it's more than 51% you need to be able to maintain an attack. Uh, so you have to be able to create, uh, create the tank. You have to be able to maintain it. Uh, and he said that's also quite difficult. So he's, I can't remember the number he gave to me, but a, f- a successful long-term 51% attack requires, I think, it, did he say 70%? I'll have to check. I'll try and check it, but people can listen to that show. But you actually need more than that. 
Yeah, it's not a yeah, it's not a boolean outcome. The higher hash rate you have, the better chance you have of that working. Um, and and so yeah, probably you can do math on it to find out when it becomes probable. And so the barrier you want the barrier to having that be done very very high, ideally. And then you also you want it high compared to the percent you know, but the potential gains they could get from doing so. So for example, an entity could short Bitcoin and then do a fifty one percent attack. And try to recoup their costs or make a gain from it, um, and so you know we want that hurdle rate to be pretty high. Now, if it were to happen, that wouldn't be the end of Bitcoin, right? Because then you could you, that changes how you interact with it. That changes basically maybe our the number of confirmation times we wait in order to consider a transaction to be secure. It doesn't affect your older transactions. It's not it's not like they can rewrite the code just because they do a fifty one percent attack. Uh, but basically, they can do various kind of, you know, they can do obviously a double spend attack. There's also kind of interference they can play with the functioning of 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 the you know the transactions being processed. And so it's it's a you know I think the way I view this risk is that it's a legitimate long term concern that you want to watch. You want to see Bitcoin mm. continue to grow. You want to see it maintain a healthy fee market. And that's also one reason why adoption and security are kind of interlinked. Because if you do a number of attacks, so let's go back to our, for example, our, our government ban uh, example, where let's say you do the kind where you just cut it off from the financial system, uh, so you don't ban it outright, you don't get like you know super authoritarian, but you say, okay, banks can't interface with it in the United States and Europe, uh, institutions can't own it, uh, we don't have you know industrial scale miners in those countries, right? Uh, that you know if that were to be successful at slowing down adoption. And let's say you keep Bitcoin under under a trillion dollar market cap for many years, uh, as the block subsidy declines. Uh, well, then the overall miner revenue, uh, you know, starts to get weaker, uh, and it starts to somewhat open the door. If say a, a state actor like China wants to say, uh, you know, we don't we don't like the fact that this permissionless uh, money exists, and we want to try to discredit it or attack it, and so it becomes at that point more conceivable, still very challenging. But more conceivable that they could, you know, potentially start attacking it, and then that that could damage the brand, right? So that could damage the how we how secure we view it, how uh, suitable we view it as money. Um, and so generally, you want to see that that I would describe it as critical mass be reached and surpassed, where Bitcoin is large enough and flourishing enough that its blocks are always full, uh, that minor revenue is very very healthy from the fee portion. Uh, so that attacking it becomes ex- exceedingly improbable, uh, and it's something that it, it's the way it's designed looks suitable. I think it's going to make that transition well, but it does require Bitcoin being, you know, well adopted in my view. And you know what, Bitcoin has continued to survive uh, every four years, uh, and we've conceded whilst hash power has you know, fluctuated, it has uh, on uh, it has continued to rise, and it. it it's really like this thing where I think about the beauty of the design, and I don't know how much was intentional or unintentional, but the the halving and the design seems to have created this kind of like feedback loop every four years to increase the hash power. What I think would be interesting is if, when you talk about you know, in the future maybe China wanted to attack it, but if a certain amount of wealth was held in the US and perhaps the US was very pro Bitcoin. Whether you would there, this would then become a national security risk for certain countries, and they would therefore want to load up on hash power to defend the network. And uh, I think it's the kind of thing that um, I think Jason Lowry, the Space Force guy who came uh, came out uh, publicly recently, was saying that the future wars could be uh, hash wars, which I, I find fascinating. I don't know if you've seen what he's been writing about. 
Yeah, I've seen that come up. Um, and yeah, basically, once it becomes that large, one is you have you have large custodians wanting to defend it, and you have countries wanting to defend it, um, while you have another country, you know, maybe try to attack it. Um, and that's why you want generally Bitcoin to achieve a certain level of adoption before the block subsidy gets really small, uh, because you want it to achieve that critical mass where there's a, a lot of parties interested in in defending it. You could even kind of conceive of like a science fiction war where you know we have, we do a drone strike on someone else's hash rate because let, let's say China wants to attack it, and we just do a drone strike on that little operation, you know, and and just say nope, you can't do that because that's you're attacking our money. Um, and so you you want you basically you wanted to achieve a certain level of escape velocity uh, before that block subsidy gets too small. And and like you, I mean, I, you, the thing that always astounds me about Bitcoin is how well designed it is, right? So mm-hmm. that's that's the classic thing. People, you know, they get into Bitcoin, they say, "I'm new to Bitcoin. I, I'm here to uh, help it and and change it and you know make it better." Exactly. And it's like mm-hmm. it's remarkably how well Satoshi designed it. And and so we're watching that we're all kind of living in Satoshi's story. And we're watching this play out. Uh, people have obviously upgraded the protocol over time very gradually with, with whenever there's kind of, you know, almost unanimous consensus. Um, and it's it's just kind of amazing to watch over time how many things he really nailed, right? Because mm. it's really rare for a prototype to succeed uh, the first try. And, it, you know, in some ways it wasn't the first try because no, he... No, it wasn't, yeah. yeah. He built yeah, on he, the shoulders of giants. Yeah, but even then, I mean, if you if you kind of do a lot of research, you have all these parts and you put them together. He made so many choices that you know, twelve years later, we're still marveling at at the choices, the the combination, you know, the distribution pattern he took, uh, you know, all these kind of intricate details, uh, even the decision to put in a, a block size cap, right? Things like that are, you know, there's there's so many things. There's like one or two things could be different. And the project could have failed to take off for one reason or another. And so it's actually really remarkable how many things he got right. And this is the last thing we're kind of watching is, okay, so we're, will it get big enough for fees to, to be workable for security? And my view would be yes, but it's something we have to monitor. Well, and not just Satoshi. I mean, it's right to give him credit, but I think we need to also give credit to a lot of the people who fought on the front lines of Bitcoin, who've defended it, especially during the block size wars. I think what's happening with ETH is uh, a, a, a good lens for that, working on ETH version 2, which has been coming forever, uh, has a lot of uh, criticism around it. Uh, will it work? Won't it work? Um, will there be an ETH3, ETH4? I don't believe we will ever have a Bitcoin version 2. Yes, I know we have versions of the Node software, but uh, I don't believe we'll ever actually have to have a complete system redesign, which ETH has had to have. Uh, so I th- I'm, I'm with you. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. and It's, it's beautifully designed. Um, the one thing I did want to just ask you about with the uh, fee work you did, again, I'll put it in the show notes so people can read it, but it wasn't universally received as uh, um, perfect analysis. You had some, was it Shinobi was critical? What, what was the criticism that came in for it? Uh, yeah, so I had some, I had a debate with Shinobi and someone else on Twitter, and so that comes down to ways to characterize it. And so some people view, for example, uh, you know, that market cap as we know it is not it's not exactly what you think it is, right? So market cap is just calculated by taking the price of a coin by the number of coins. Whereas there's other you know other ways to now like analyze it, like realized market cap, which is essentially the cost basis, things like that. Um, and also, I mean, obviously, fees are more based on transaction volumes than on market cap. And so, you know, there's different ways to look at it. I went and added um, uh, the same kind of chart for fees as a percentage of transaction volume. And you get the same story there uh, because we've had pretty consistent velocity. If anything, you know, velocity has actually mildly declined over time 
meaning that the 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 ratio of transaction volume to market cap has gradually inched down a little bit, although it's been in a pretty consistent range. Uh, and so their view essentially is that if Bitcoin reaches, say, a million dollars per coin, uh, that the number of transactions would be higher than probably my base case and that the fee revenue would be higher than my base case. And so we have kind of maybe different views of what partial hyper-Bitcoinization looks like in terms of the fee market. Um, and so, you know, I think it's one of those things where there's certainly, even in my article, I have a range of outcomes. I'm not like, this is the outcome. I have like a grid that shows, for example, different levels of market capitalization or transaction volume and what different fee structures would mean in terms of overall minor revenue. And this is relevant for a few reasons, because one is we're estimating the overall size of the, you know, kind of the totable adjustable market of how, how large the Bitcoin mining industry could get, right? So that's that's one thing. Um, and then two, we're, we're also, you know, uh, basically analyzing how secure or how hard to attack Bitcoin is in the long run. And so these, these are useful debates to have uh, to basically model out how fees are going to work. And there's different camps on this. I guess, you know, from what I've seen, my views are pretty similar to Nick Carter's view on, on how the fee structure works. Uh, I know he's done some work on that. And so essentially... What we want to see, this is also the reason I like the Lightning Network, is because you know you generally want to see scaling methods that are tied to the base chain pretty closely, right? So every time you open or close a Lightning channel, you're contributing to Bitcoin security, um, even though you're you're doing a lot of transactions, uh, you know, with the, with those you know smaller number of transactions. Whereas if you do something like you know wrapped Bitcoin in the Ethereum network, you you put it in, and then that that can can trade around a lot. And you know that's basically not contributing to security as much. And so generally, you want to see scaling methods that are closer to the base chain. And so that's what we've seen so far. And so you know, Bitcoin is going to scale in any number of ways. There's going to be custodial scaling. There's going to be lightning scaling. There's going to be liquid scaling. There's going to be things maybe we haven't even thought of yet. Um, and so, in in one way or another, those lead back to some base chain, uh, you know, transactions. And what you want generally over time is that that base chain becomes, you know, like a settlement layer, very, very large kind of transaction fees per per movement. And then smaller transactions are extracted onto higher layers in one way or another. Okay, cool. So the last thing I wanted to touch on with you is uh, altcoins as inflation uh, and declining Bitcoin dominance. And this is really about confidence in the Bitcoin network because a lot of people don't do the work. Uh, a lot of the debates still that happen on Twitter with new people coming in and each bull market is like an increasing number of people coming in. It's like a, it's a it's an accelerating rate. And those debates about um, understanding why Bitcoin is preferred to say Bitcoin Cash or BSV, but also why it's different to Ethereum and all these other blockchains, it, it becomes harder and harder to, to a harder and harder debate to have because there's so many people to have it with. Um, and also some people just don't do the work. They don't spend the time understanding the difference between Bitcoin. So this itself is a risk. Um, we also have Bitcoiners and Bitcoin maximalists uh, categorized as boomers and it's being boomer coin and Ethereum can do everything Bitcoin can be done. It's essentially a war on narratives. You know, I'm just going to expand a little bit here because I've actually had this discussion with a couple of pe people recently and I'm, I'm going to cover it as a show. But actually, the war on narratives is really important and then sometimes perhaps even Bitcoiners need to consider this um, to ensure that we don't get kind of beaten back down by these uh, narratives from other chains. But I guess you're talking about a confidence thing here. Yeah, so, you know, one of the challenges of a blockchain is that, so, you know, Satoshi created digital scarcity, uh, which is remarkable. 
And the, the, the kind of the one kind of workaround to that is that anyone can copy the entire code base and modify it and then make their own separate blockchain. Um, and so that's not something we can do with precious metals, right? So there's gold, there's silver, there's platinum, there's rhodium, palladium, but there's not really more than that. We can't just make more precious metals. We, we only have the ones we have. Uh, whereas with, with blockchains, you could make an unlimited number of them. And that, you know, a lot of people view that as threatening Bitcoin's scarcity because, you know, there will only be 21 million Bitcoin. But, you know, then you, there's Bitcoin Cash and there's Ethereum and then there's Litecoin and there's dog money. And, you know, now there's a bunch of different types of dog money. Uh, and, and so, you know, that can diffuse the scarcity, uh, especially because people end up not being able to understand why, you know, maybe one unit, uh, you know, one blockchain is, is better than another in terms of security uh, and moneyness. And, you know, the analogy that I've, I've seen used before and that I, I like a lot, I used to use a social network example, but I actually think the Wikipedia example is even closer where I, I could copy Wikipedia, right? You can actually download the data. Um, and the text data is not that big. Uh, if you download the pictures, it's bigger, but it's still doable. You can download all the Wikipedia, and you could I could post Wikipedia on my website. Um, and the question is, would I get anywhere near the traffic or that Wikipedia gets? And of course, the, the examples, the answer is no. I wouldn't get anywhere near the traffic they get. And it's because I can copy all the text that's there, but I can't copy the network effects. Specifically, I cannot copy the millions and millions of links around the internet pointing to the real Wikipedia. And I can't copy the the active user base of people that are constantly updating Wikipedia. I can't convince the, the the majority of them to come over and update my version instead. So mine would always be this sad, you know, barely visited like shadow of the real Wikipedia. The same thing is true. Going back to the social media network example, if I make Twitter that looks like Twitter, uh, but it's I don't have the network effect. I don't have the developers, the users that Twitter has. So it ends up being forever this like struggle Twitter that no one uses, even though maybe I, I somehow copied the entire code base, it's just not the real thing. And so Bitcoin has that network effect. And now, you know, I've, and I've, I've talked with, with Elizabeth Stark on this, the Lightning Network is another enhanced to the network effect because that takes years to develop the, 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 in addition to the development, which is copyable, but the years of liquidity and nodes that make that network very usable that takes a long time to develop. That that's harder to do than a DeFi project or another blockchain. Um, and so Bitcoin now has multiple layers of network effects built on top of it, um, and that so the security is higher, the development is is more secure, um, and there's features being built on top of it. We also have you know hardware. It's like there are certain hardware wallets that only cater to Bitcoin. There are certain applications that only cater to Bitcoin. Um, in addition to any ones that you know cater to multiple coins, right? So we have our basically an increased kind of surrounding ecosystem, and so overall, that's what separates Bitcoin from other tokens, and is is mainly why we view that one as money, uh, and everything else is like at best an equity or at worst a scam uh, compared to Bitcoin itself. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what Jack Dorsey is doing with regards to Bitcoin as well, because they've talked about creating a hardware wallet that now he's talked about creating a decentralized exchange, um, the work they're doing on creating open source uh, code for lightning development. Uh, he he seems to be working very hard on this like Bitcoin only ecosystem to support what you've just said. So I find that super interesting as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it because he's talked about integrating lightning wallets with Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also he wants to have an alternative to fiat to Bitcoin on ramps based on what he said. So he wants to have a better peer to peer trading, and that actually would that be basically a defense. I think he 
you know, like that's the that's what that's one of the benefits of talking about the risks because, for example, he he's clearly aware of the risk of fiat on ramps being taken down, not just in the United States but in any country. Um, and so, the better tools you have for peer to peer. Uh, trading and, a, and a ways to get into the system without going through the banks, the better. That makes the network more resilient. Um, and so it is good that, he, that someone like that is working on those problems and has kind of a you know a large pool of capital to potentially use uh, to see his his views come to life. Um, yeah. And so you know the way I view it right now is that there's only there's only two blockchains that have serious network effects, and those are Bitcoin and Ethereum, and those are very very different, right? So one's a proof of work, uh, uh, security first blockchain that did not have a pre-mine uh, that does not have a marketing budget or a development budget or you know and then the other one is a smart contract platform that that does have equity like characteristics that has a, a number of more security problems that is changing over to proof of stake which uh, again I view that more like an equity at that point uh, than money um, and so Bitcoin doesn't have any direct competitors really in terms of what it does uh, the the competitors like Litecoin or some of these these hard forks are are very very tiny compared to Bitcoin, and so the only concern really is that you know whenever you have a bull market uh, in Bitcoin, and you're going to get this alt season that comes with it, where there's this flourishing of new projects, and that pulls in all this capital, right? So literally, Dogecoin reached like a ninety billion dollar market capitalization, and if you look at Robinhood's filings, I mean, Dogecoin was like a very meaningful percentage of their revenue. Dogecoin trading fees, um, and and they're literally people like they're in this walled garden because you can't pull your coins out. They don't know that you know the the, the whole way the nodes work. They, they don't understand how you know the, what what makes Dogecoin technically different than Bitcoin. They think it's kind of the same code with a different brand, um, and that's really not how it works. They don't understand the security differences, and it's so far historically it's been through bear markets that the differences get understood, and so during the bull markets. You know, basically, this ends up being a real risk because all these other supply exists. People flood into that, and that eventually exhausts buyer demand uh, because all the all the money that could otherwise have just gone into Bitcoin gets spread out into any number of projects until there's just tons of malinvestment and no one's willing to buy anymore. The whole thing kind of rolls over, and then we go through a long correction phase and we separate the wheat from the chaff. And so, in some ways. Bitcoin and, and other cryptos have done this to gold, where you know if, if Bitcoin was never invented, uh, none of these exist, gold would probably be somewhat higher today because there's a certain percentage of people that would have bought gold that for, for lack of other alternatives. Uh, but because they have these alternatives, they buy those instead of gold. And so the same thing can happen with Bitcoin, at least temporarily, where money that would all flow into Bitcoin instead flows into, say, rock JPEGs uh, or, or dog money. And and so that at least that's that you know kind of the the bull market peaks out at a lower phase than it otherwise could, um, and then goes through this consolidation as we clear out these projects that you know. And it's it's hard to say which ones will necessarily go all the way to zero versus which ones will have some sort of residual value. But it's you know that kind of slow at least slows down adoption to some extent. Yeah, well, it's really interesting going through all this because um, Bitcoin has always been under. Attack. It's always had its threats, uh, and it still does today. But we, we are in a very good position, and it feels like most of the things we've covered today, I think we've covered them fairly. But uh, everything is just kind of like it's, it's kind of like uh, continue as you are. Continue supporting developers. 
continue uh, ensuring you manage good personal security. Uh, uh, continue focusing on Bitcoin and teaching people why Bitcoin is more important than than altcoins. Uh, and, and a certain amount of like wait and see with regard to things like quantum and and secure and um, uh, uh, the fee market. So uh, I think we've covered it fairly, but I I feel very confident in Bitcoin survivability. C- certainly, the next 10, 20 years, uh, I feel very confident. I, I, I assume you're very similar. I agree. I think it's an exceptionally well-designed protocol. Mm. Um, part of my decision to go from neutral to bullish on it back in early 2020 was I, I view the network effect as having achieved kind of escape velocity uh, where the probability of, of permanent you know, loss to any other attempt really was low. Uh, and so I, I view Bitcoin as the best chance we have in order to have, you know, what like people point out, I mean, Henry Ford talked about a currency based on energy 100 mm. years ago. Um, and this is this is the best shot we have, I think, to, to come to this this viewpoint happening. I think that's a really powerful idea. Um, it, you know, people are, it's funny, people are worried about Bitcoin in the environment. I, I you know, literally as someone with electrical engineering background, I, I want uh, Bitcoin to use more energy because it uses energy in such a useful way that it can actually, you know, improve a lot of things. Um, yeah. And so I'm I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I like to focus on it both positively and discuss the risks. So, you know, because I want people to understand them. I want to understand, I want people to see, you know, the difference between Bitcoin and other protocols, uh, what makes Bitcoin unique, um, and, you know, just people can continue to support this. There's other risks as well, like, you know, if, if the El I think you've talked about this, if the El Salvador uh, experiment doesn't go well, mm. even, if, even if for reasons unrelated to Bitcoin, that could, again, slow down adoption. Other countries could get into that maybe less than they would have if it's a if a if it's a wild success. And so there are any number of things that can affect the speed of Bitcoin's adoption. Uh, but you know, in most cases blocks will still be made, right? So as long as the security model's intact and so far it's done that for 13 years almost. Um, it'll just keep, you know, making new blocks. And, you know, it's a lot of the risks around it are how we treat it, right? So if we're emotional or we were leveraged, or things like that, that we can get wrecked by these things, uh, whereas Bitcoin itself is actually really resilient. Yeah, well, that's a great way to end it. It, it really is. Uh, before we go, just a quick question. How much have you looked at NFTs? Like, have you have you deep-dived on them? I haven't. I can't remember if you have. So I, I did, I touched on them in my research, and, you know, my overall view is, is it's, it's certainly an interesting uh, technology, right? Basically, it's, the way I've described it is essentially you're, you're getting a signed copy of something. And so I, I, I certainly understand collectibles to a degree. I mean, I, I, I have magic cards, for example. When I was a kid, I had Pokemon cards. I mean, you can have a silly, like a piece of cardboard can be worth like $100,000 um, because there's we, we kind of agree that there's some sort of rarity to it. And so NFTs are kind of like that, where you you have a piece of art. It's, it's kind of, you know, that one is almost like quote unquote signed because it's kind of locked onto the blockchain. Uh, but of course, the risk there is, you know, at, there's a flood of new NFTs coming to market until they until they saturate demand. It's like, oh, you, you like rocks and punks? Well, here's tulips. Literally, there's tulip ones. You say, here's, you know, here's Lambos, here's penguins, here's apes, here's rabbits. Uh, they're, they're, you know, basically, we're going to exhaust this whole thing. And we're going to get malinvestment. And so one of the theses for people collecting the old ones is say, well, these are 2017 ones. These are the originals. So you can't, you know, they're going to be 
the ones that hold value. But if you look at their prices relative to, say, Michael Jordan rookie cards, they're they're higher. And it's like you know, it, you have to. It's one of those things where you have to be. An, I'm not like an art critic, so I don't want to say like I think this NFTs worth this. It's just I I view the space as like 99% malinvestment, 1% interesting technology. Um, I've seen, you know, the guys at Blockworks just had like a, a episode out and they kind of characterize that every cycle kind of has an interesting idea that ends up being all crap, but then it kind of, <laughs> plant, it kind of plants a seed for the next cycle. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So like you had the ICO boom and then, you know, late, years later you got DeFi and there's actually something kind of fascinating there, right? So you, you kind of had the seeds of it planted earlier. And then now you have NFTs and we have like, you know, multi-million dollar rock pictures. And it's like, well, NFTs are kind of an interesting phenomenon. We'll see where, where people in technology take this. I know the guys that work on Liquid, for example, I think they yeah, put a movie ticket out. So there, mm. there is, I think there's interesting kind of long-term ways to play this. Uh, there are such things as luxury goods or people want to display some sort of, you know, flex in terms of I, I have the the you know, say the the rare penguin, whatever the case may be, like someone can can show, like I'm not saying I do, I'm saying someone can basically, you know, sh- show that they own something. Uh, but I view that, that there's a very high probability of malinvestment in the space. You're also tied to the security of the blockchain. And so, for example, there are there are crypto punks on the Solana blockchain that look, you know, they're like the same ones uh, in most cases. Like most of that is overlapped. There's like an alien punk. Um, and those are worth way, way, way less than the Ethereum ones. Um, that's because they don't have as much confidence that the blockchain is going to be around for a very long time and it's going to catch on and become the dominant, say, smart contract blockchain. And so let's say you buy an NFT and let's say Ethereum, for whatever reason, doesn't work out five years from now. Uh, you know, the fact that your JPEG is like signed on that blockchain doesn't mean much, right? Because Mm. so you're, you're betting both on the underlying blockchain and that that NFT on that blockchain will be viewed valuable years from now so yeah so i i view you know pretty much the whole space has rather speculative mania at the moment where you know people are making money but it's it's you know i i don't view it as kind of durable value i think that ticket thing's super interesting because any technology which cuts out a middleman and, and saves people money is, is is super interesting and if you think with regards to concert tickets or sports tickets you know, i almost always buy these days off the secondary market but these websites um that that resell the tickets always have considerable fees. Now, if I'm going to be buying, say, two tickets for... I'm going to the, the boxing in Vegas and say the tickets are $500 each, you can end up spending 100 150 in fees for each ticket. Um, uh, if you could create some kind of like a decentralized exchange for these tickets, which are NFTs, that's kind of interesting because uh, I can sell my ticket to you. There's no, no middle man in, in between that. So that's going to reduce the cost so, um, and create a more efficient market for these tickets. So I do find that interesting. I know some people will be listening again, oh, you only like it because it's on Bitcoin. Actually, I don't care with, with regards to tickets. I wouldn't care if it's on Ethereum because it doesn't matter with Ethereum that the, the, the network uh, has some long-term issues. If I could buy a ticket off you now and I'm going in a few weeks, I, it's kind of like low risk, but I do see that as kind of interesting. Yeah, there's also an argument where you know, right now, if an artist creates a, a painting and then sells it, um, you know, it's probably not going to sell for a ton. And then, let's say years later, they're well known, and then and then that person sells that painting to someone else for a hundred times the cost. That that initial artist doesn't get any of that extra bump up in price. Whereas there, you can, for example, have a programmed NFT where every time that is sold, the artist gets a cut. 
And so it is, it is. It's one of those theoretical kind of neat ways you could power musicians. You could you could power empower uh, you know artists of various types. Um, but it, it comes down to whether or not we're too early or from the wrong blockchain. Uh, and if, if we're doing it for the right reasons of, of, say, interesting technology versus speculation. And so it's like one of those things. In the dot-com bubble, there was tons of malinvestment, right? There was, there was mm-hmm. pets.com. There was you know things that had no business being the valuations they were at. Some of them took 20 years to recover. Right? But there were things like Amazon or Microsoft that eventually did recover and go back to new all-time highs because there was real technology there. Yeah. Uh, real, real value there, and so I think you know, with these, with these kind of speculative manias, there's kind of a glimpse of something useful, uh, but that people are distracted and, and and unable to determine what is long-term value, what is money, what is secure, and you know, over time, we we you know, right now we we always are looking through, say, a like a a dirty window, we can't see perfectly clearly through it, and then years of uh, in hindsight through bear markets and and kind of you know time sorting this out, we separate the wheat from the chaff and, and see mm-hmm. you know, which, which things actually had value, which things were built on sand rather than granite. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Lim, you know I love talking to you. Uh, awesome as ever. Uh, I will, I guess I'll see you in a month. Yep, Appreciate sounds you coming good. on and covering this. Bye. Okay. Did you enjoy that? What did you make of that? I get a lot of requests to make shows like this that are slightly more critical of Bitcoin, and I think it's good to go through and evaluate these risks every so often, and so you get a better understanding of them, and what you can do to help mitigate them, because we all play a role in Bitcoin, but I'm still bullish. You can't kill Bitcoin. Come on. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one, and if you do want to get in touch, if you've got any questions, you can jump into my Telegram group, or you can hit me up on my email. That's hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and listen... If you want to support the show, if you're a regular listener and you're bored of this message but you have not left the show a review, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me one there. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Alrighty, I've got to go to bed. It's a late one here. It's past midnight. It's been a long day filming, but I can't wait to get this film out and show you all. Anyway, love you all, and I will see you all next week. <laughs>